Welcome to What's Korea Cinema 30 on The Handmaiden. And for the 30th episode of this show, we return to reviewing something from uh, the canon of one of the key figures out of the early millennium new wave Korean cinema. But he has proven to be valuable uh, asset of of the scene ever since then and still and still is and that is Park Chan-wook and we'll be looking at his 2016 erotic thriller The Handmaiden in all simplicity one of the biggest if not the biggest Korean movies in terms of um, being a discussion point uh, that people have mentioned a movie from Korea recently oh The Handmaiden I think you know that, that and The Wailing possibly was uh, 2016's like talking points The Wailing The Handmaiden and Train to Busan Oh, of course, of course, yeah. Train to Busan, probably the biggest one because it's a genre movie, nonetheless. So. Totally, they were the big three. Cool, uh, well, we'll get into it as quick as we can. Uh, some quick contact information, first of all, this is What's Korean Cinema on Podcast on Fire Network. We are located on podcastonfire.com. This is not the only show we do. We do shows on Hong Kong cinema, Taiwanese cinema. We uh, discuss leasing movies, ninja movies. We do commentaries and bonus episodes every now and again. So make your choice over there. What do you, what do you prefer? Well, we hopefully have something for you, including uh, hopefully this one on Korean cinema. If you have any questions or feedback, let us know what you think of The Handmaiden or Park Chan-wook, your favorite Park Chan-wook movie. That email is podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Join us over on social media. We have handy buttons at the top of our website leading to Facebook, which uh, the direct link is to our page. But you can also join our discussion group that is called Podcast on Fire Network if you want to follow show updates and discuss uh, in uh, all the friendly ways that we do. And you can also click the Twitter button leading to our Twitter presence and uh, the, uh, the iTunes button if you want to subscribe to our feed, uh, the What's Korean Cinema one or the entire network's uh, feed. Uh, that's all available to you. And if you, if you have an, anything to say, leave a written comment or even a star rating to uh, let us know. We would love to hear from uh, more of you. And uh, finally, Stitcher Radio is the place uh, where you want to go if you care to stream us. You can either do that on their website that uh, the button leads to or download applications available on the Apple App Store or Google Play and just search out What's Korean Cinema or Podcast on Fine Network and you'll find us that way. I write about uh, mainly Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies, new and old, uh, with a specific genre focus, and but I also cover a broad variety of movies over at SoGoodReviews.com. I post basic video reviews over at SleazyKVideo.com and my Twitter handle is at so good reviews and gold celluloid the place to be for the latest park chan work and the like so oh yes i run hangelcelluloid.com you can find me on facebook at facebook.com slash hangelcelluloid on twitter at, at hangelcelluloid and if you forget any of that just go to hangelcelluloid like podcast on fire i've got twitter facebook etc buttons on the home page which will take you directly there and i even you know have the latest four or five tweets on the actual homepage so if you're really lazy just go to hanglecellular.com and the latest four tweets are something akin to I love insert female actress so much yeah I'm, I'm quite good at that really Facebook I'm terrible at because I've got two like yourself I've got me on Facebook and I've got my site I'll keep the site one pretty nice and you know the oh look imaginary wife number one is a sort of a personal Facebook feed but I'm, I'm better on Twitter I keep it much more as it should be, far less of the fawning over beautiful ladies and much more of fawning over beautiful films, really. Right on. Well, that's a good way to make yourself uh, seem more proper rather than dodgy. Uh, that was a good way to to, to actually pr- prop yourself up. You know, if if it's a personal Facebook page, well, anybody that knows me knows what I'm like, so it doesn't really reflect on anything, I hope. 
good, good, good. Uh, we got a few sections coming up, even if there are only a few in total. But I thought I'd give you a heads up nonetheless. And uh, I'll put timestamps for each respective section in the show post on podcastonfire.com. And I think those notes should turn up in your podcast applications on your devices as well. So first, we'll revisit the talk on the career of Park Chan-wook, uh, taking you up to date while also adding some pr- production notes on The Handmaiden. And we conclude by reviewing The Handmaiden. So all, all simple stuff. I mean, it's an ongoing career, so sometimes when we don't do a show on a particular director for a while, there's some new stuff to be added. But anyway, 2016's The Handmaiden, a plot from the CJ Entertainment write-up, goes as follows. 1930s Korea is the setting in the period of Japanese occupation. A new girl, So Ki, played by Kim Tae-ri, is hired as a handmaiden for to a Japanese heiress Hideko, played by Kim Min-hee, who lives a secluded life on a large countryside estate with her domineering uncle Kosuki, played by Cho Jin-wung. But the maid has a secret. She is a pickpocket recruited by a swindler posting, uh, posing as a Japanese count, and he's played by Ha Jung-woo. Both of them, he well, he's there to help uh, seduce the lady uh, to, in order to elope uh, with her, to rob her of her fortune and lock her up in a madhouse. That's the plan. It seems to proceed according to plan until the handmaiden Soki and Hideko discover some unexpected emotions. That's essentially part one. This movie contis- consists of three parts, and I think we'll keep it f- sort of spoiler-free. We won't re- mm-hmm. reveal the ending, but some points about part two and three where things go down might be considered spoilery but we'll 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 keep it uh, we'll keep it as vague as we can but uh, first of all let's discuss uh, Park Chan-wook and uh, we have done so before but um, we'll go over it again it's not the world's most extensive uh, career because it's still ongoing so uh, but uh, nonetheless he was born in 1963 in Seoul and studied philosophy at the Seoul Gang University but he fell into more cinema-oriented thinking uh, when he started a cinema club within the university called Sogang Film Community. And he published articles on contemporary cinema as part of uh, this interest. But it was really Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo that changed Park from aspiring art critic to wanting to embark on a filmmaking path. And he worked himself up through the ranks in the film industry, first as assistant director on movies such as uh, Watercolor Painting in... Rain, rain. I've written Rainy Day, but it's probably Rainy Day. Watercolor painting in Rainy Day, uh, but which was directed by Kwak Ye Young, which is the director of My Sassy Girl. So he worked for him before, um, before embarking on his own uh, directing career, Park that is, uh, and that directing career started as early as as 1992 with the movie The Moon Is the Sun's Dream. But it would take another five years before he made his second movie called Trio, and in between he supported himself as a film critic. But the big commercial break came with JSA in 2000, uh, Joint Security Area. This success on all fronts, you know, audience and critics uh, fronts, achieved, uh, it had a result of uh, the filmmaker getting more freedom to start developing what is now known as his Vengeance trilogy, which is Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy, and Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. And the middle part, 2003's Old Boy, earned great praise at the Cannes Film Festival and picked up the Grand Prix Award uh, at, at uh, the same festival. And it, and it was, after many years of back and forth, uh, remade in the US uh, as Old Boy. Uh, to, uh, 2013 uh, was the year, and Spike Lee directed the remake that, as we established before, few people seem to like and few people seem to remember because it sort of came and went. And I always ask you this because I know you're sometimes you 
okay, I'll do it. Have you watched it yet? <laughs> really? I've, st- I've still only made it through about 15 minutes of it. That's more than one of the last times I asked, because I, I don't think you ever acquired it uh, when I asked last time. I was like, nope, not gotten it yet. <laughs> it's one of those things where you think in your downtime, I want something that I'm not really going to have to think about, so I might as well give it a shot, and I just, no. You know, after a, after about 15 minutes, it was just, it was actually annoying me more than more than I can say, and I just, I didn't even bother carrying on through. I just didn't think it was worth it. Well, it's probably the feeling of redundancy was there too, to a degree, I bet. Totally, and just something that didn't, do the original any justice and i mean you know as we'll say old boy is certainly not my favorite part on it film but it's a damn sight better than the remake so uh, and I, I can believe that even though i wasn't fur fairly sold on old boy very good movie but not the masterpiece um, that everyone else was uh, talking about but hey agree okay that's okay speaking of that's okay park chan will switch to uh, more out there and comedic with 2006 i'm a cyborg but that's okay uh, starring what was it rain is that it yeah, Rain. Who went on to star in one of the most annoying movies I've ever seen, Ninja Assassin. Mm. CGI blood heaven for people who like CGI blood. Should have been an animated movie based on so how much CGI blood was in that movie. Oh dear. Yeah. I can dig a basic violent movie, but to paint it all with so much fakery mm. was a bit too much for my sensibilities. So, uh, so therefore he's never made an impression on me at all because he just sort of like, is he, is he behind the CGI blood? Somewhere. The rain is rainy blood, but rain is still back there somewhere. So, don't know if it, is rain any talented now based on c- c- cinematic evidence. He's passable, you know. He does he, what he does okay, but I will always see him as a singer turned actor. I just I can't get past that. So he's okay, but certainly I would not choose to write home about him. Mm-hmm. He's a singer, but that's okay. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, Park Chan-wook went on uh, to direct uh, the acclaimed vampire movie first in 2009 and has since made his US debut with uh, the critics and audience divider Stoker. We'll, we'll get to Stoker in a little bit. And still publishes film criticism as far as um, as far as far I know the research indicated this. Um, but, uh, you know, he's very popular and, um, you know, he can be a critics uh, divider. But... Um, for, for still a brief rundown, I mean, you can rant and rave as much as you want, uh, you know, hail him and uh, shove him into gr- the ground as much as you want based on uh, based on certain movies and uh, all of that. But y- you follow the new wave and you follow the man throughout the years. And what makes Park Chan-wook significant um, in terms of the Korean cinema he puts out there and how he puts Korean cinema on the map? Like, what, what if we keep it simple for now, I have more questions. What makes his cinema significant and what sort of attracts you to his um, style of cinema? He's not afraid to do different things. Both he and his brother, he's, he's got a brother called Park Chan-kyung, um, who's much more of an art film director who does very experimental things. And I think some of that rubs off on Park Chanuk when he does off-the-wall stuff. He does it with confidence. And th- to my mind, that a lot of that is some of his best stuff. His short, his iPhone film, Night Fishing, is one of my favorite Park Chanuk films. What is off-the-wall in this case? Is it, it, what, what, does that mean comedy or off-the-wall in terms of like just stylistic, like weird excursions type of thing? Styl- stylistic, weird excursions, narrative switches that are very surreal, especially in, in films like Night Fishing. 
I, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it by telling you why, but there's something about the main characters that is completely the opposite of what you're led to believe for the half of the film. He's not afraid to do that. He's not afraid of criticism. And was, what some of his films do for me is nothing. And what some of them do is 100%. I either love his films or quite dislike them. He's so original that even if you hate him, you will find something to love as you go along. And I know you've stayed away from him a bit after Old Boy. Based on the fact that I keep myself busy watching crap most of the time. It's not like, I'm not going to watch first. Yeah, no, it's not that. You know, for for me, I, I mean, up until very recently, as we'll discuss later, uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, as far as I'm concerned, was his best ever film. I thought it was a masterpiece. I, I thought Old Boy was okay. I thought half of Lady Vengeance was okay and half of it was terrible. I didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much the stupidest viewer in the world, as you know. Lady Vengeance was still... I, I left that movie... Well, I saw it at home, but I, I left that movie like befuddled like it felt like a big art abstract art movie i could not connect to anything that was going on there it, i don't know what it was so because I, I i guess i expected something more clear and linear or something and i think that you've sort of kind of hit the nail on the head you know some of that stuff just doesn't work from my point of view a lot of people don't like lady vengeance at all but in doing what he did he was trying something completely different You've got to give him points for that. And when it works, it works. I adored Thirst. Even though it's quite throwaway at the end of the day, it's a stunning film. Its character portrayals are phenomenal. What about uh, what about Cyborg, if we talk uh, his take on comedy? I kind of liked I'm a Cyborg, but I was always aware that he, he made it for his 15-year-old daughter because she couldn't get in to see any of his other films because they were all... They were all 18, so... Oh, that's lovely. That, that, I'm, I'm seeing that based on that positive train of thought right now. You know, so going into it, I knew it was it was going to be almost, you know, a sweet pantomime of sorts, um, and all the violence was going to be very cartoon violence, and it kind of worked for me. I know some people have a problem with the way he treats mental issues in the film, but I don't, I don't think... That was his intention. I think he was just trying to make a sweet film about interesting characters. So it, it kind of worked for me on that level. Comedy certainly has been in movies like JSA and even Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, these droll, quirky comedies. I know that he's very confident at that. Very and, much. And that, that bleeds into being very silly, too. Just look at the way the soldiers in JSA uh, act when when uh, when they don't have uh, their superior's eyes on them. Like they're, 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 very, they're very carefree and, and silly. So I, I know that works. And I know that there's some of that in The Handmaiden, even if it's not uh, rampant or anything. Very much so. And if you look back at something like Thirst, um, there's a lot of it in there as well. And I'd almost, as I'll probably mention later on, I'd almost see Thirst as this sort of prequel to The Handmaid. It's not on the same level, but it has its beautifully erotic elements and, and humor. And it just sort of, you almost see him experimenting way in advance of even knowing that he was going to do this, you can tell this sort of handmaiden story would appeal to Again, we go get back to Stoker, his entry into the US market or onto the US market. Uh, I mean, based on just knowing ever so slightly the, the tone of the movie, I mean, I know it's not the last stand, you know, a big mm. action vehicle. It didn't seem there for like a pure 
commercial decision. Uh, was that feel and that story suited for Park Chan-wook? Uh, was it like an extend natural extension of his voice established in Korea? Or what, 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 what was your memory of uh, Stoker? I was not a fan of Stoker. I don't think it suited him at all. And I would almost bet you money that he was pushed to make the story the way it was. It feels like an American movie. It's it's slight. It's predictable. It looks beautiful. Not necessarily as beautiful as some of other Parchenuk's other films, um, which, again, we'll talk about a little bit later on. But what, uh, what, uh, what was it, just to establish genre? Was it a horror movie? Or a, sp- or a ghost story? Or what was it? Yeah, it, essentially a serial, serial killer movie. Yeah. It had nothing of worth from my point of view. The, the big, the big controversial scene is where the younger female character ends up killing someone and then masturbates in the shower. And it just, to me, it, it was so blatantly forced in there. It just didn't feel natural. And from that point on, you knew exactly what was going to happen for the next 45 minutes before it ended. And when it ended, you were right. It was so throwaway. It was better than The Last Stand, but certainly I, I wouldn't even consider it a Park Chanuk film. If I hadn't known it was made by him, I would have guessed it was made by some American director who hadn't done very much. Uh, and as for The Handmaiden, news broke in uh, 2014 that Park would adapt the historical crime novel Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, which was published in 2002 and set in Victorian-era Britain. An award-winning novel, it uh, already was uh, the subject of uh, adaptations as early as 2005 when the BBC adapted it for TV under its original title. And closer to Park's production, a stage adaptation was done in 2015 by Alexa Jungie, uh, or Jungie, um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and then Park made a splash in Korea with his 1930s-set colonial-era Korea version, and this was released in 2016. Have you seen or read any of the um, source material or um, uh, and the adaptations that um, that happened? In- I've essentially had a, a look at overviews. I haven't actually read the novel, but I'm aware, you know, Victorian England, it's got a lot of the same elements if you like in terms of the actual narrative even though it's completely set apart and in different times and whatever else do you think it seemed like uh, uh like based on what you've absorbed of uh, the original it, did it seem like a major challenge to transfer this to korea i would almost guarantee it was as easy a, a switch as you could find um i know park Chan-uk, he was at the the bfi london film festival in November with the handmaiden and he did a bit of talking and stuff and he got obsessed with Sarah Waters work and just read it all, read it all, read it all. And he said the moment he'd finished the handmaiden, he almost remembered it like it was a story of colonial Korea. To my mind, I assume it just fits and it works in terms of the narrative. You would watch it if you didn't know it was written by someone who'd written something about London it feels natural in terms of the setting. So I assume it was just something that fitted. Yeah, it's uh, certainly very isolated anyway. Um, and you you can just change like locations a little bit and uh, that, that will make it work, yeah, certainly. So so yeah, it, it seems to me like that this didn't take 10 years of workshopping to get it, to get it changed or anything. So. I would imagine not, no. 
Was it a critical and audience favorite in Korea? I mean, I know it was probably a darling at Cannes, and uh, I mean, it won a technical award, but, but uh, you know, the, the floodgates are pretty open in terms of critical and awards attention overseas. So uh, what about Korea for the, for the Handmaid? Korea was very supportive of the Handmaid. Park chan became known as the educated pervert <laughs> as a result of that, a name from what I can gather, he wearing he very, that proudly on his. He screen. is very, very proud, and and at every you know talk and Q and A, he mentions the fact. Hey, that hey, he, hey, educated poet is here. Let's get some Q and A going. <laughs> it was it was incredibly well received critically, and it was received well in terms of audience as well. And I, I think that says an awful lot about the changes that have happened to Korean cinema over the years, which we will talk about later on because it's, it's a, to my mind, an incredibly erotic film, which just a few years ago, there would have been a great difficulty in being made in the Korean film industry. But we'll, we'll chat about that later. Is it, uh, was it top three admissions uh, that year? I mean, it had to compete with uh, Train to Busan and The Wailing, I guess, for, for admissions. Yeah, I mean, pretty much your, your, top, your top five. So it's done incredibly well especially considering how controversially it could be considered. And I mean, on that subject, when Park chan was talking, he said he, in hindsight, thinks that the time was right for that film to be made, which wouldn't have been the case just a few years earlier. Cool. Well, uh, and, and I have actually that question in my notes in terms of uh, what you can get past uh, census in. 2016 and uh, and uh, what it was like earlier. So, but uh, what's up next for Park Chan Wook? Is anything announced? Are you ready for the big news? This is according to Stoker Two. <laughs> You're not that far off. According to press that can be relied upon, Variety and the like. According to them, Park Chan Wook's next film will be uh, another English language movie called Second Born, which is a sci-fi film which is based on people's memories being held on like USB sticks and they people swap brains and steal bodies. Um, he's supposedly, it's in development. He announced that he was going to do it at the same time that he announced he was going to do The Handmaiden. So I'm assuming now that The Handmaiden's been done, he's moving on to that. He's been linked to another couple of films, one called The Axe, which I know nothing about. But he's never announced himself that he was doing it, whereas he actually has said that he's doing this second-born English language film. And on that note, I think the fact that he's doing another English language film may well have something to do with the problems that he's had in Korea since the Busan problems where, you know, the sole disaster film was banned and all the main directors threatened to boycott the Busan Film Festival. Uh, uh, wait a minute, uh, uh, what, what movie was banned? Okay, there was a film called, there was a, a ferry disaster, I'm sure you've heard all about it, where hundreds of young school kids were killed. Mm -hmm. And the government sort of blanketed over the top of it. They made a documentary called The Truth Will Not Sink With Soul. I haven't, I haven't actually seen it, I have to be honest, um, but... It supposedly told the truth of the government cover-up, the truth of who was to blame for the disaster and who should have been held responsible. It was scheduled to screen at the Busan International Film Festival. Busan's local government said, you can't screen that, we're not having it, it's anti-government, banned the film. Then all the, the filmmakers turned around and went, well, you can't tell us what we can and can't 
see at a film festival, so we're going to boycott it, which led the government of Korea to blacklist a load of directors and actors, uh, including Park Chan-wook. Long, long story. But um, as of November last year, when he was in London, he was still on the blacklist, the government's blacklist. And as such, his management wouldn't allow him to answer any audience questions. All his questions were set up in advance and given to him by the head of the the BFI, the the programmer of the London Film Festival. So I would assume him his choice to now go and do another American movie may well be linked with the troubles he's had in Korea. Wow. Well, that's. I mean, I know nothing of it other than what you tell me told me about. Where the smoke does fire, and uh, if I, I think the more rational people are the ones that want the truth told, because it's not about uh, let's go after people responsible and stab them in their sleep by showing this movie. It's about it's a, it's about knowing the the truth of a situation, you yeah. know, a, a tragic situation in which hundreds of innocent kids passed away. I mean, I think. Just from a respect point of view, they deserve the true story to be told. Yeah, very much so. And uh, in in this day and age, a documentary like that is going to get out anyway. Um, you know, because uh, you have social media and you have uh, international film festivals and uh, distributors willing to uh, willing to show the movie. I mean, there, there was this movie called in Hong Kong called Ten, I believe. I might be totally wrong, but it was an anthology film about Hong Kong stories, and it was uh, not very popular. Very independent, not very popular in Hong Kong. Uh, got the, the best director or best movie award actually at the film awards, but it was so it was quite critical, and um, certain people did not find that amusing that a movie like that is put at the forefront. So it has had trouble getting distribution abroad. Quite quite okay with showing some film festivals and what have you. So it's not the same situation, but it's that I mean it's not social commentary again where they're just out to be childish and expose people's lives and like here's their addresses and here's their social security numbers it's about telling telling an unfiltered truth um totally and I, th- I think that's that's really important well 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 we'll see what happens but back to the handmaiden uh, maybe we've lost movie for a while <laughs> like uh, you'll miss my box office just on a, a a tiny step off considering the likelihood of him doing another American film, I just would like to say that I really hope it's better than Stoker. Um, it's, I've I've got myself in a worried state of mind. Yeah, I know you're not too keen on <laughs> on what the projects might hold, but uh, yeah, we'll certainly see. But as for my short opinion of The Handmaiden, uh, it's very entertaining, a sexually frank period thriller uh, with great style and elegance, but Park Chan-wook, just like Shin Sang-ok, is... Uh, it's smart uh, in terms of um, style. He lets that be a subconscious inclusion. It's not. It do- doesn't draw attention to itself at all times. And we're watching it for the sometimes heartbreaking con that goes on here. So quality all around, my friend. Is it his best movie? As you as as you personally think? Still think JSA edges it out, but it's damn good. It's damn good. Completely understandable opinion. I've spent days trying to figure whether I. You know, as I say, I'm a huge fan of Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. And I've spent days thinking, do I prefer The Handmaiden or Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance? And each time I watch one of them, I decide it's the better one. Well, well, isn't it wonderful that you have, have to choose between uh, excellent films? Right? Totally, totally. <laughs> what a hard problem to have. I'll, I'll watch it again. Okay, then. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it is better. You know, it's, it's good, it's good. No, no worries me there. Um, so, yeah, he's on his third decade as director and um you know i'm curious as a more sporadic as a sporadic viewer if uh, 
he's gonna stick to old tricks you know uh, a slick nature to his movies but a sly humor within the package as well uh, but you know a 2016 Park chan wook doesn't need to think in the same way you know as he did 16 years ago but um it could because it could be half sad if someone used the same old tricks but wholly awesome if using the same tricks still produces sharp tactics you know and excellent uh, movie quality and all of that so uh and 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 i think it, it, there is some of that in handmade but as you also said there's versatility across the filmography so it's not like wow jsa4 here we go it's yeah, totally. it's it's, a, it's just sort of on the surface tactics that ah, i recognize that from that thing like he he's still good at that well cool you it, it was okay to indulge a little bit uh, so yeah but the movie sets up you know wealth and that there's strict routine in this uh, house and strict rules and it doesn't scream that life is fun on this big estate uh, you know and we've seen the depiction of wealth and power leading to the need to dominate you know the lower class in in the household you know just look at the the maid in the house in the housemaid remake you know it, it had that sort of vibe that house and the, the setup is so far so we get this introduction to this intricate maze of a house you know there's like hidden slots everywhere including the the bed the little room that the handmaiden is supposed to live in as she uh, as she is on call all night long so this all reeks of professionalism, but not been there, done that slick nature to it all. You know what I mean? Like it's a uh, it, because you you can get tired of that. Like yeah, this movie's well made, but um, no. And we're talking Western movies and Eastern movies, but there, there is something here that totally well made, but not scre- screaming for attention. I know exactly what you mean. There was a film last year called that did really well by Lee Junik called Dongju Portrait of a Poet based on the true story and of films aside from The Handmaiden um, of films in recent years I would say it was maybe the best made but it kind of just left me empty it left me cold because he just I'm a huge fan of the director but he just trumped out the same things he's done in films in the same way and it was just I've seen this enough. I've I've done it enough. I know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, Park chan yeah, you recognize some things, but he, he tends not to be caught by that. No, absolutely not. I mean, and also, I appreciate the quickly established you know, you know geography and the, the nervousness of the characters who walk in the house because they know their, their master has strict rules and all of that. And I didn't know, of course, how much humor would be in here. There's not a lot, but there, there is some wonderfully droll stuff. Uh, we, we get really quickly, you know, 15 minutes in this, because it's established that, uh, I'm going to scroll up for my name again, the, the lady Sumi Hideko is... Uh, her mental state is not uh, is not well so she yeah. might wake up in the middle of the night and she does and uh, and the handmaiden enters the room and all of that but then there's a second freak out while the handmaiden is looking out the window and i laughed because you see her run past her in the background as the camera is uh, facing the window from the outside and, and the handmaiden being freaked out by that so i love that little like running from one side of the room running back and forth that that would have been funny too but he, he does that little quirky droll thing that this is such a freaky thing that she just scream wakes up screaming in the middle of the night and just was back and forth like yum, totally, yum. Totally. <laughs> it's there if you wanted to i i don't know if uh, i'm the only one sort of looking for it but i recognize that as well he's having a little bit of fun so go for it too yeah and even like the you know this quick switch to 
the backstory of uh, the thieves and the conmen and all of that. That to me was funny because we have we have this dark setup of the estate, and then cut to this workshop with babies and uh, conmen going in there, and I'm a thief and I pickpocket. I learn from my mother and da 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 da. And we're gonna do this and this and this and go go to Japan and da She's gonna go into nuthouse. We'll be rich, hurrah! So it's really like. They're enthusiastic, and this is a little factory of uh, of conmen and thieves and all of that. So, how about you? Did you recognize that as uh, him having fun, and it's uh, it's it's okay to to have uh, to have fun within the story? Very much so, and I think he he handled it really well. I mean, that opening section to then go and do a flashback, it's done a lot in Korean cinema, and sometimes it's almost difficult to figure where you are and what's going on. And I think Park Chan-wook takes fun and puts it within that so that you just you get to know the characters as you're aware of the story unfolding and i love the fact that suki um played by kim terry the young handmaiden as she will become um from the very outset even back then is just you can almost see her snarling at the guy who will be the kind played by hai jong woo she she has no respect for him she hates him she thinks he's a useless con man not as good a con man as she is and i love the fact that he references that from the very very outset you know uh, I'll, I'll i'll put you on the spot possibly but i'll ask it anyway like I, I don't know the japanese and korean history as intertwined you know the countries intertwined but for a korean in this case the uh the uncle of the household to embrace japanese culture so strongly as he does in the movie would that be quite a deviation for for a Korean man at this time to to want to essentially do a do a big switch from Korean to Japanese? You know, uh, do you have any take on that? Over the last few years, there have been a large number of Korean films set in colonial Korea when it was under Japanese occupation, and every single one of them mentions one or more characters who are essentially Japanese collaborators or Korean people who are trying to become Japanese because they see Japan as the future. Um, so it's it's clearly was a big issue and filmmakers just constantly point to it and say, look, this happened, this happened, this happened. So yeah, it was it was a thing. It's not part time ripping something out and, and saying maybe this could have happened at some point. It, it was an issue. And also, I mean, we, we touch upon now Japanese and Korea. This movie actually is multilingual. It's uh, shot in Japanese and Korean. Mostly sync sound, it sounds like to me. And I, I didn't know beforehand, because I don't know many actors, if these at all were Japanese actors. Some of them were not. But it, it all looks like, uh, obviously, a Korean cast. And did it all sound natural to you? To me, it did. The, the frequent mixture that the three main characters uh, three, four main characters uh, have this mixture of Japanese and Korean language. Did that sound completely natural to you? Totally. And, uh, you know, I'll guarantee you that it was actually, there was there was no overdubbing. I think that was that was real as it was. If you look at all the colonial Japanese or Korean and Japanese stories that have hit out over the last few years, they all have that multilingual thing. At the time when Japan was taking over when it took occupied Korea, there were efforts to destroy Korean culture completely. Um, Koreans weren't allowed to speak Korean. They had to change their names to Japanese. That whole 
Korean Japan, Korean Japan, you know, speaking Korean when they were on their own, speaking Japanese when they're talking to those in authority or whatever else was again a real thing. So I think again, Park Chan really handled it well. It just it feels natural to me. It flows and it just it fits with everything else that you see that that handles it in the same way. Have you personally read anything about the actors expressing that they needed to prepare hugely to get this right? Uh, do you know anything about that? Or oh, and is and any one of them actually bilingual anyway? Kim Min Hee who plays Hideko, the the mentally challenged, maybe, mistress, is bilingual. She can speak both. As far as I know, Ha Jung-woo, the, the main man, learnt his role, as did Kim Tae-ri, um, who's the, the little handmaiden. So, you know, half and half. You know, I don't know that much Japanese. I can catch words here and there. But it, it sounded... It sounded real to me. It didn't sound like they were saying something they didn't understand. And it, that, that actually, um, I'll, I'll leave it to you to explain, that actually brings up the point, how, how are we so certain of of the switch? Uh, because, okay, we can pick up, that's probably Korean, that's probably Japanese, but an additional aid to differentiate when they do speak and when they don't speak. Uh, Japanese takes place in the subtitles. So I want to explain to listeners how they solve the subtitle issue uh, instead of writing now she's speaking in Japanese. They handled it beautifully by putting Korean language in white subtitles and Japanese language dialogue in yellow subtitles. So you're instantly aware of what language you're listening to, even if you don't recognize them orally. Yeah, and uh, I was totally blown away by that, actually, that they, they fought uh, for once and uh, thought about audience immersion that way. Because sometimes it's only a word that they say in another language, sometimes a rude word, you know, la-da-da-da-da, cunt, and then back to Korean, <laughs> like they say the word cunt in Japanese and then move on, and things yeah. like that. So, um, But, but you know, uh, throughout the movie, if we talk in general, it's, uh, it's singled out, this movie, as being elegant and stylish. It's so awesome technically, but uh, does he ever miss a beat in terms of showcasing style, and showcasing the story like, like like does the story get lost underneath the technical style at, at any point no from my point of view uh its balance is almost perfection every time park Chanuk, or almost every time he makes a film he brings in production designer ryu sung and cinematographer chung chung hun and if anybody's interested there are interviews with both of those lovely people on hangulcelluloid.com. Go to the interview section, click down. Um, they'll, they talk about their work with Park Chan-wook, et cetera, et cetera. Their combination helps him make his films utterly, stunningly beautiful to the extent that they can do a lot of the necessary things and allow Park Chan-wook to carry on with directing and, and not get bogged down. Yes, his films are beautiful, but it's down as much to them as it is to him. And if you look at Ryu sung other production design work, you can tell it's her from start to finish. Every film you think she's done it, she did. If you remember Hansel and Gretel, they just work as a perfect team. And yes, Park chan gets all the credit, but they deserve as much credit for the stylish elements that make his films what they are. I mean, it's never really hidden for us. We see it all, especially that study 
area that's uh, that I thought was guarded by an actual snake. It seems like it's a snake statue. Yeah, but yeah. but I thought it was okay. Well, it makes sense. This is a domineering uncle. He's gonna have a cobra uh, guarding this uh, that study area. But uh, and it's really the scene where where Park showcases camera work to the extreme. But uh, it's not. Uh, it earns that moment. Uh, you know, the movie kind of, I think, prides itself that, yes, it's set in a reality, but we can sort of be, we can overemphasize reality too. If you just think of how the room is designed with uh, levers uh, that closes uh, doors on the other side of the room to prevent anyone from running out of the room and things like that. And there, there's uh, there's things underneath the floor, uh, not floorboards, but uh, the floor panels and all of that. So it, obviously it's the big, big, big set, but it, it doesn't stray because um, you become curious. But what is this room? Why is that man's tongue black and his lips constantly black? You know, well, we kind of know, but they constantly are anyway. It doesn't seem like uh, he's bothered by uh, by that, you know. It, it, it's fantasy in, in style, the movie, anyway. It seems a little bit elements, uh, elevated. So I think this uh, it all fits uh, fi- uh, fits together. So, you know, sexuality plays a part here. I mean, how do you think he depicts uh, sex- the beginning of sexual tension? You know, the the, the scene in the bath with uh, where she, the handmaiden, has uh, the finger in her mouth and trying to, like, even out her teeth or something like that. Uh, one teeth is, like, too sharp. Uh, like, how do you think Park handles such tension? Is it... Uh, is it cheap or is it cheap exploitation sexually or is it better than that, do you think? Before I saw The Handmaiden, I knew it was based on an erotic tale. Um, I didn't know anything about the way he was going to do it. I hadn't read anything about it. When I saw that bath scene, I almost jumped for joy. I don't think it's cheap. I think it's utterly erotic without having any real erotic. Okay, you, you see a pair of breasts at the end of that scene, but that's by the by. The eroticism is her filing that tooth down with that thing on her thumb. And the way those two women stare into each other's eyes is as erotic as a scene could be, as far as I'm concerned. I think it worked beautifully. And he's not building all his content that, okay, they're falling in love in that particular scene. It's just the beginning of something, which is smart. And I I love the speechless aspect of it. And if you look at Kim eyes... You can almost see there's there's yearning in them. Maybe I'm reading into that, but I was just from that moment I thought this is going to hit the right buttons. This is going to do it. Well, 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 there is a classic tale of sympathy being played out here: uh, sympathy and compassion for your victim. Which so uh, so I don't think you're wrong because uh, in, in voiceover that isn't at all rampant. It's, it's sort of a stream of consciousness voiceover from the handmaiden, mm. sort of saying that can't wait to get that jewelry, but. What a poor girl. You know, so she's she's materialistic to a degree, but she grows into, you know, feeling something for her and feeling uh, sad for her. Uh, and the voiceover isn't lazy, and uh, it adds character rather than over-explain, um, because Park chan keeps it to a, a fair minimum. So we know all that we need to know through the voiceover, and, uh, and then he moves on you know, building character through yeah. non-voiceover means and, and all of that. Even takes a few seconds to to throw a gag at this, you know, because at one point they try on undergarments, uh, uh, both of them. So uh, the handmaiden is shown what it's like wearing this uh, corset. And he cuts to 
you know, this is what I... Well, she doesn't say this, but we, we don't see her ta- putting it entirely on. He just cuts to uh, the lady just tightening the corset in that two, fi- two three second shot. Rope is, or whatever, uh, the, the belt is tightened and she goes like... <gasps> And then he had had his fun. He had he has his fun for a little, for a little uh, beat there, you know. And I, I always appreciate that. I think he's uh, he's wonderful at the, the sort of droll humor. So. Uh, but it's a two and a half hour movie, and he develops a lot quite fast. You know, within the 30-40 minutes, a lot is established, a lot of conflict is established, and it is a two and a half hour movie. I know you love it, but w- was that a concern that Park? There's you have plenty of more movie to go. You don't need to put all the things into the first half hour, 45 minutes kind of thing. Because I, or did you know, as a matter of fact, that it's going to have three distinct parts, this movie? I didn't know. I, I knew I deliberately stayed away from hearing anything about it, really. Apart from knowing that, you know, it was based on the novel and it was part of it. And I knew I wanted to see, see you know, Kim Minnie, I'm a fan of hers, and Kim Terry had been getting great awards left, right and center for it. But I, I wasn't aware there were three parts. I wasn't aware that it was actually two hours, 24 minutes or two hours, 25. I first saw it in a cinema and I got the same feeling when I was rewatching it. As you get to a scene that involves a mental asylum, which is about an hour in, to me, it almost felt like a shortish film, which was coming to its conclusion. And it didn't occur to me that there was another hour and a half to go so i was like well okay well we're obviously going to be wrapping up soon <laughs> that was a fast moving picture wasn't it guys yeah it went i didn't that didn't feel like two hours and then you know it goes into its second part and for me it really worked because it took me completely by surprise it took me completely off me guard too. i didn't know anything about it only the mild plot which is the plot we told you that's the part one but we said nothing of what goes on in part two and three in the plot synopsis listeners. Nothing at all. The thing that occurred to me last night, you sent me a, a message sort of late on saying you were going to probably hit it in two parts and you'd watch about an hour. And I didn't say anything at the time, but I was just thinking, please get to the mental asylum scene. I totally did, man. I, I, I was sort of saying to myself, an hour is a good even number. Then I realized that so did. Park Chan Wook. He yeah. also realized that an hour is a good even number to to throw a curveball at you. You know, I I would almost have guaranteed if you'd stopped it before then, you wouldn't have been particular, or you wouldn't have been as excited to go back in. But having hit that point, it's just like wow. I and you actually sent me a message saying it'll be an interesting eighty minutes tomorrow. So I was I was so glad you hit that point, and and I like the fact that he hit that. In a surprising way, I liked the way it almost felt like the film was taking a different tack, and I'm not giving it away. But the wonderful thing would have been if they had a silly uh, intermission title card and silly music. What do you want to see more? Want to see more? It could quite be possible with Park Chan-wook, but if you just remember how Monty Python did it in Monty Python and Holy Grail when they're walking over the bridge and intermission time. <laughs> but I, I actually do, uh, you know, I didn't dislike the hour at all because I felt th- there was strong emotion there. Like her sincerity and sympathy towards the, the lady seems to break through. She has that wonderful, encouraging speech talking of that 
essentially her mother would be proud of you. You know, you're not worthless. Totally. And, uh, you know, a lot of that's going to not change. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything, but the movie's going to show, show things from different perspectives during part two and three without going over the same hour again. But uh, I, I felt that was a very neat, you know, story. And especially as they physically connect to each other you know they have a sex scene and uh the two women so it's, but obviously that's not made for spectacle it's rather kind and tender as depicted despite going far i noticed things on the sound design in the sound design department that could be argued to be oh we got that we got those sounds in mm. a mainstream movie all right and that leads us to talking of what we hinted at earlier in terms of how difficult it is to get sexuality of this nature and to this degree on Korean cinema screens in 2016 because you you've said that all censorship has changed their they keep a tight leash in certain eras and certain eras don't did you hear of any difficulties bringing this unaltered to the screen for Park Chan-wook the surprising thing and it was a really surprising thing for me after I'd seen the film and realizing just how in my little review I made a point of saying this is eroticism. It's not titillation at all. Because, because isn't it tender and kind that scene? Because she she says like the 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 lady that because she she has been kept so isolated that she hasn't like developed more. She she's almost like a kid. They even keep a lollipop near her nightstand all, at all times. It seems, and she doesn't know physically and hasn't never known physically how to like her sexuality has never been awakened so it's a rather tender and sweet scene even though they go at each other if you will totally there are a couple of things that i think are important on that but before i go there if you look at the the eroticism uh, you know it's pretty heavy duty for a mainstream film korea over the years has had big censorship less censorship as far as normal sexual relationships male and female go Korea has been very forgiving, very far more forgiving than same-sex relationships. When I was first watching The Handmaiden, it reminded me of a film called The Scarlet Letter from 2007, which has lesbian elements. It's, it's nowhere near as graphic. It's nowhere near as heavy. But it was released, I think, 2007, and critics at the time blasted the main actress, Lee Yoon-ju, um, saying she was immoral, you know, saying, if if you'll excuse the phrase, some of them called her a whore. Jesus. For being in a film that promoted lesbianism as a positive thing. I'm sure you know the story. I think I recognize it now. Yeah. Three three months later, Lee Yoon-ju committed suicide. She She had been suffering from depression for a while, but I think the smart money said that what was said about her in The Scarlet Letter certainly didn't help her mental state of mind. And comparing that to the way that Kim Tae-ri and Kim Min-hee have been given accolade after accolade for their performances in The Handmaiden and, you know, best actress, best new actress, again and again and again, I think shows how much Korea has moved forward on the whole alternative lifestyles on, you know, same-sex relationships. Yeah. And on that note, and I know I'm ranting, but no, 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 no. for me, a, a huge part of the acceptance of the film is the fact that the girl's relationship is shown as sweet, beautiful, intense, but, you know, filled with light. 
and even heartfelt lines that about uh, like I single out such heartfelt lines and it sounds so easy to write them but she says at one point you know will will I be good enough is is this good enough I mean am I good enough for you totally and if you if you compare if you go later into the film um, I'm not giving much away by saying this but the the mistress um, Hideko is forced to read erotic literature to a group of men. I saw The Handmaiden in a darkened cinema. I was sitting in a darkened cinema looking at a bright cinema screen and the scene in the library with the men sitting in a darkened room with her as the light at the end was part-time work. I guarantee you saying, you guys in the audience, you are the man. And when you listen to that sort of sexual description of stories they use if i can swear they use the cunt word constantly if you compare that to the women when they're first together they use a c word as well more than once but the word they use is cute and from my point of view that says it all park janook saying look these women's love is cute it's beautiful it's it's the the hideous man drooling over genitalia that's sick sex and that's what was always considered normal but but it has it's always approachable though because the it's it's a con man or woman story so there there are beats like i don't like this con anymore or you're not gonna fuck it up for me because he's so he's so desperate like <laughs> i i laugh because he grabs when he confronts her because she's expressed like disgust that we're doing this to this poor poor woman like he grabs her hand puts it on his penis like you're not gonna fuck it up for me bitch and then she says later well i fucking hate having my hand on your tiny little pathetic cock <laughs> so and it's overacting man that works like his over-the-top outburst shows a lot in him that it, this is my big chance i'm not gonna be on the bottom of society anymore it, it has approachable beats man which is uh, which is great like it isn't a complicated movie i think despite being in this wonderfully stylistic and complicated technically made package yeah. totally I, I think a, a huge huge credit has to go to little Kim Tae as the handmaiden in the way she plays off him I mean she hates him and she just you can the sneering coming out of her mouth at one point he's teaching Hideko how to paint a peach and he says something about the look at the purity of the the fruit, and you see her in the background just sort of dry heaving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what and a corny motherfucker. Her beautiful, feisty, narky, huffy little performance just she pulled me through that entire first hour. I if if it had just been her on a screen doing that she'd have won me over and, and you know she deserves every award she's got and it does have to be said that The Handmaiden is her first feature film oh no way she, she's acted in I think three three student short films before it but The Handmaiden's her first starring Korea role Korea has a way of getting directors to do splendid first time movies and so certainly actors and actresses as well That that is wow that's going to be interesting this career I hope she builds on this well, totally. You know, the the last the last actress I I can think of that hit me as much in her first role was sort of Park Bo Young, and she's gone on to just do no wrong. So I'm hoping Kim Tae ha- ends up having a phenomenal career. If if her performance in The Handmaid is in to go by, she's there. 
well they're all they're all bringing their a game and uh, that's why i have so few notes on the actors because they, they, this is all they're all immersed in their characters and and at the same time it's not it's dark but it's not fairly depressing this oppression of hideko's backstory and how her her uncle has brought her up and what she he's grooming her as this uh you know this piece of entertainment for which on the surface is cultural but close to the surface is that it's perverse as well as you as you established that she's merely there to act out these erotic novels for for men that just sit there and uh think they're cultural but they're being absolutely you know just oogling perverts uh, there and uh it's uh, obviously a damnation of wealth and uh, a certain class but not it, it doesn't stop to be this okay you gotta be in tune now because I'm, I'm doing social commentary man so listen up everybody no it, it, it's a movie it moves on man that, that's there that's a story point and if you understand the story point but don't stop and think about it historically then that's fine too totally i, th- I think the characters are so well fleshed out and so engaging that that yeah you're aware of what he's saying but it doesn't hold you back at all. You're you're in it for their story and you know what she goes through and having to recite those things and 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 even stuff like obviously it's filled the 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 gloves turn up all the way through the movie and I I, I guess that's that's just to signify that you know the the elements of sadism and uh, dominance and because uh, at one point you know they they laugh as they're they are reading literature. Dad talks about this is the penis, this is the vagina, and when the two laugh, she's a kid at that point, Hideko, so it's her then current handmaiden or her mother, uh, or something like that. They, uh, he walks up to her, the uh, the actor, and uh, p- puts the you know the black glove above their above their mouths for 10-15 seconds, and then walks away. And Park Chan Wook is not doing any noise with this scene; he just stays on it and then moves on. So, so obviously it's there to emphasize that you know I've, I've got black gloves that, that that's not a good thing for you for anyone you know i'm the bad guy we, we're gonna touch a little on part two and three but we, we're gonna keep it vague do you, hmm, let me see how, how i can ask, ask this i mean do you think he has control of all he's done in part one and what's going to go on in part two two and three that's gonna flip events a little bit in part in in part one as part two and three are depicted like is that all kept in check it's it's understandable and it's not redundant either as he goes through the same events again and again because uh, d- there's different perspectives on events we've already experienced like is it um if i'd known that he was doing this before i'd seen the film i would have been deeply worried it's a, it's an incredibly risky move um and i think he handles it absolutely wonderfully on two le- well on all levels but two things come to my mind, all the tiny, tiny little things in the first section that play a part in either two or three are all sewn up right from the little hair pin that Suki has, is, give, is given by, you know, whether it's her, her aunt or her guardian or whatever, at the very start of the film, eventually plays a really important part in the third segment of the film little things like that he just carries through everything's linked to everything else and i think he 
manages to give a different perspective, even if he's talking about a similar thing, he gives a different enough perspective and adds just that little bit extra to make you fully understand what you thought you understood before, but you actually didn't. I think he, he his beats are absolutely perfect. The switcheroo, if you will, in terms of changing sympathy and compassion for characters, I can say that much that he, he flips it that way. That's awesomely surprising and made, but also infuriating because you, uh, you, you've been emotionally invested and now you're almost heartbroken to, to a degree, you know, in, in the middle of part two or whatever. That's what I like the most. I think that their connection and it's a key connection. And that, that's what where it finally sunk in for me, that this change of perspective of compassion and sympathy is sort of what sealed the handmaiden for me. And there was plenty to go at that point. There's another side as well. I mean, I don't know if you get the same thing as me. If I if I'm going through a film, I obviously will have decided what's going on. I will have decided what's going to happen. And the fact that he so easily fooled me. Yeah, well, 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 that's what happened because he set up exactly bad guys and good guys and and these beats of the con common con man story that was there in part one and then by the end of part one oh okay so that was sort of not it then okay the idea that of doing that any a lesser director would have sort of lied by omission by just leaving bits out and park channel doesn't really do that it extends things a little bit but it doesn't feel like he's cheating to me, it just felt like there's an extra little idea in the scene which I'm now aware of, and I should have been able to read in. Obviously, I I wouldn't have been able to, but no, no. I I was I was excited by the fact that he beat me, even though I couldn't have won because of the way he's done it. I think he did it beautifully. Yeah, you know, for me as well. Like, it's not like oh, I I totally knew what was coming. No, I didn't. And if you said that during part one, you're a liar. Because it's too smartly concealed. The only way you would know is possibly by reading the novel, of course. Um, and you know, in Heartbreak, as simple as it is, and the emotional connections to the character, that's been a staple of the Park Chan-wook cinema I've seen, certainly. I mean, yeah. anything from JSA, you know, how that forbidden friendship of North and South Korean soldiers got crushed, and the revenge aspect of Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, like the, the line that's still haunting to me, even though I've only seen the movie once, is that line at the end of the movie uh, that essentially is in English, uh, you realize why I have to do this. You know, when they're standing in the water. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And I like, there's no, I do have to do this. I don't like it, but I do have to do it. On a, on a completely separate note, it says a lot about a director who can make a film with a, a line in it that after you've only seen it once, it stays with you. Yeah, it's that uh, uh, face of Song Kang-ho as, as, as well as uh, the two. The two have the confrontation there in the water towards the end of that film. So just some wrap around, uh, wrap up notes. The continuation of the love scene is very well done because uh, it's not like he repeats it, but I'm shooting it from above instead. No, there's more as you've hinted at. And yeah, I I like that it's it's this pure unchoreographed passion that for film needs to be choreographed, right? Because you you can't just thrash about the place because there's lights to be placed in a certain position. People need to focus on the scene, so you can't just, uh, uh, you girls, do your thing. To get a sex scene right, after having seen dozens of dozens throughout the years, it's just great because this is not a sex scene where all of a sudden there's thousand candles around them. 
<laughs> for no particular reason. Like, uh, it's very natural. Obviously, we've seen 90% of it set up, the mood of it set up in part one, but the continuation in either part two or three, I think, is, is beautiful and it's uh, very brave of the actresses and certainly more explicit, as you've said, than you expect out of, out of mainstream cinema. I mean, again, not to be crude, but there are some stuff in the soundtrack design where where the Foley people add sounds of uh, of uh, genitals that are moist. You can hear that on the soundtrack. I'm not trying to be cool and rude here, but you hear that on the soundtrack. And in I guarantee you, you wouldn't have had that go through a ratings board in America, for instance. Like that, they would have said, okay, that that sound goes away right now. Yeah. Otherwise, you you won't get a rating. And uh, that it got through unscathed, and uh, and the version I watched from the American iTunes is unrated, so there's no additional um, tampering on it or anything. I don't think it would have gotten an R rating if if submitted, to be honest. So so yeah, Park takes chances, as you have also said, uh, confidently. So he dips us into humor into humor every now and again, but then quickly reverts to this part sad predicament of this tyranny that goes on here, and he spends just the right amount of time and replay time with these characters to understand the bonding and the developments and the twist and it's carefully and quite almost perfectly constructed without incoherence and because uh, I was kind of afraid I think because it's a period movie oh my god am I going to be able to follow it because mm. it's a costume movie am I be going to be able to follow it again I'm the ninja guy I watch stupid movies uh, but, but yeah I think it was very very well constructed and uh, and, and affecting and uh, everybody on their, uh, on their A game like you like you read about I only have one question to go, but I'll, I'll I'll save that for the very end. So, any other things you want to say about The Handmaiden? Two quick things. One that I should have mentioned earlier on, when we talk about him holding every every element together and making it count as the parts progress, if you look at this overall, I consider The Handmaiden to be male you know, debauchery against female sensuality or pain versus pleasure. And there are a set of four little bells on a rope that in the early stages of the film, um, the uncle uses, or in, I think the second stage, actually, the uncle uses to beat the young Hideko over the hand and cause her pain. And at the end of the film, similar bells are used for a much more beautiful and sensual thing. That that sums up The Handmaiden to me. And the only other thing I have to say, he said not being able to shut up, um, as you go through the film, you're going to see Kim Tae-ri, you're going to see Kim Minnie, you're going to see Ha Jung-woo doing wonderful performances. Take a look at Hideko's mother when she's a young girl, the, the mother who hung herself years ago. Um, you won't recognize her, but that's Moon Sori. Um, who was in Oasis, one of the biggest actresses in Korea. Oh, was she the, uh, the cerebral palsy girl of Oasis? She was indeed, and she has a tiny role in this. She almost goes without even noticing, but that's Moon Sori, So, And finally, last thing, I have, thankfully, I'm blessed to have interviewed Ha Jung-woo, the main actor, Moon Sori, um, and as I say, Ryu sung and Chung Chung-hoon, the production designer and cinematographer. All the interviews are on hangelsideyelloy.com. Pop over and have a little read. Well, that, that actually was my last question in terms of... Um, not, not, have you interviewed them? But 
many well if you you've answered it in terms of Kim Tyree this is a debut actress for for a lead role but um, I couldn't recognize many other well any really I think the name Ha Jung Woo has turned up as a name but I can't say what movie I've seen them in so aside from Kim Min Hee well Kim Min Hee and Ha Jung Woo are these top movie stars always in movies type of actress actors and actresses hugely um kim minnie has been very much on the indie circuit throughout her career she's she's worked with ej young on behind the camera she's been in his film actresses and they're both sort of documentary fake documentaries set up by the director she's worked with oceans of directors that make small films like Helpless. She's been in Very Ordinary Couple, Right Now, Wrong Then. These are really big films by independent people, and she sort of hit that. Ha Jung Woo, on the other hand, is star upon star, and you say you've recognised his name. As soon as I mention a couple of his films, you're going to remember who he is. Um, If I said The Chaser... And the Yellow Sea. Oh, yeah, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Now, now those eyes make sense to me, uh, especially from a chaser, definitely, yeah. Totally, you know, he's just, he is what he is. You just, you can't not recognize him once you recognize, recognize those eyes, really. He's done so much visceral Korean cinema. He is the visceral Korean cinema guy. Um, and he's also directed a couple of films, Fashion Your Seatbelt, and... He said, trying to remember the other um, Chronicles of a Blood Merchant. He's moving between acting and directing. He's a huge star. It was almost confusing when I watched the poster. Like, who's the fourth guy? And it's actually Cho Jin Wong Wong in uh, without any of the of the uh, old age makeup that he appears in for a good amount of the film. Same thing. You know, when I first saw him, I didn't recognize him because it, it, it was an old man. And it was it was only later on when you know you see a, a photograph of him that you think, oh yeah, um, he he separately is a big character actor in Korea. You know you want you want a character role. He's your guy. Pages upon pages upon pages of film listings that he's done. You know right from right throughout the years. Um, so that Park Chan Wook's got a phenomenal cast. Out of them all, it's little Kim Tae Ri. She's a she's a a phenomenon. There, there's no uh, spotty acting here at all. Actually, there's uh, just uh, everybody on point. So mm. definitely. Um, and as for availability of the handmade, and that that's actually a little spotty currently. It will be better. There are DVD and Blu-ray options in Hong Kong, but there's none listed coming from Korea at Yes Asia anyway. And I mean, you you informed me that there was a limited edition thing for DVD only. Which is, uh, which sounds surprising as hell. There was a there was a limited edition two disc DVD released shortly after about three months after the film came out. And in, in this Korea. day and age, only a DVD, not simultaneous DVD and blue. You know, the the one thing that comes to mind is either the fact that they've considered it quite controversial and are holding off, or there is a Blu-ray imminent. I would also hope that there would be at least a single disc DVD release, but I think that's quite doubtful. Yeah, so in Korea, no, but Sony has done a DVD-only thing for the US market in association with Amazon Studios, but you can rent that version on US iTunes in HD, so so you can get this good-looking movie looking as good as it um, should coming from iTunes. 
Um, so on, on the US market, it's going to happen sometime. It's just, it just hasn't happened now. But UK distribution at the time of recording will be taking place in April of 2017. It goes in UK cinemas on April the 14th, I think. It will be released on Blu-ray and DVD, I guess, a few months after that. Um, they've even put the catalogue numbers available, so it will be released. They just haven't put a date up. It was thought among a lot of critics that the reason the UK was holding off was because of the Oscars. That's now a mood point. <laughs> it's now a mood point. So, as I say, April in the cinema, and then there'll be a Blu-ray and DVD released, I'm assuming, towards the summer. Yeah, it was submitted, which is stated. It wasn't even nominated. The handmaid and uh, when when all is said and done, I didn't know this, but apparently Sweden got in. Uh, there's a there's a, a movie called I f- think they translated it directly from Swedish. A man called Uve. I haven't seen. I know the director. I know the actor. I heard something that is quite similar to Gran Torino, uh, Clint Eastwood's movie. Um, but that's that's like okay, well I gotta support that sometime I guess. Uh, I'm sure it's good. I, I just don't keep track of Swedish movies as such. We're almost certain that now they're finally gonna get the nod, uh, Korea for best foreign language film. Or, or what were you thinking beforehand before you got the bad news? I had an argument with a guy who used to write reviews for Empire magazine, and I said, how could it not? be nominated if it's been submitted it's astonishing in his infinite wisdom went oscars people are utterly conventional they'll take one look at the sex scenes and not nominate it now whether that's the case or not that turned out to be the case that it wasn't nominated i guess maybe he's correct i'm very upset about it i think it if it had got a nomination i would have almost guaranteed it would have won an oscar i think it deserves one yeah i think the last when i finally realized this is years ago that when i was sort of still interested in the oscars and awards i mean i follow them at on surface level only but since i don't watch a lot of western movies then i don't know mm. everything that's uh, that's nominated but the last time i've really followed it and when i realized that oh yeah, they're going with conventions, was the year, and we're talking 2000, and we're talking the best song category at this point, the year the song from, one of the songs from Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia was nominated, Save Me by Amy Mann. Wonderful song, and the soundtrack is wonderful. And the song Blame Canada from the South Park movie soundtrack was nominated. Which was a little dicey, because there's it's one of the songs where there's only one swear word. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> so they didn't. Uh, they did. MTV nominated Uncle Fucker, but the, the Oscars wouldn't nominate Uncle Fucker. But they, in Blank Canada, there's a there's a F word, and they they solved that in the uh, uh, in the performance, which was actually performed by Robin Williams. Out of all, they they just ha- had a random thing. Well, let's have him perform it. And in the end, uh, what won in that category? That it seemed like such a well, either of them's gonna get it because it's great. And I mean, Magnolia is great, and that song is great. Um, Tarzan. The animated movie won. The, the Phil, Coll- Phil Collins did a song for the Tarzan song, <sighs> song for the Tarzan soundtrack, which probably is all right. But people just sort of went, "Really? Was it was that better than the Amy Mann song?" Okay then. And the, the, the South Park guys they made fun for Phil Collins for a number of episodes where he appeared in the show, always carrying his Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. I, I think you've I think you summed it up really. 
that was the year where Matt Stone and Trey Parker, they went to the Oscars in dresses. They uh, replicated the uh, Jennifer Lopez and Gwyneth Paltrow uh, <laughs> dress from early years. And they took a hit of acid before they stepped out of the limo to do the red carpet. And uh, as they said, like the show is so long, but at least we're on, you know, we have acid in ourselves and it's pretty good. But then they come down and then they lose and there's no more fun anymore. And we're just a couple of guys in dresses. Yeah, totally. But uh, that would have been fun. But so, so I know it's, I mean, it, it is what it is. It's hard to get originality and un- unique material to go all the way. Sometimes it happens, but... um uh, it, it is what it is. Shame because a, a nomination would have been uh, would have been deserved, especially since if it had been nominated, it would have been Korea's first one, and I think I, I think it deserves that too. But we'll just have to agree to differ with our opinion with the uh, Oscar judges. We have the love for the movie; they, they can never take that away from us. Totally, totally. <laughs> Okay, guys, uh, we'll hit the think tank as we always do for the next set of What's Korean Cinemas. Uh, but uh, yes, this was the 30th episode. Uh, no uh, bells and whistles other than we, we discussed a great movie. So that was episode 30 for you. But uh, at any rate, uh, this has been What's Korean Cinema on the Podcast on Fire Network. This show and our entire lineup is available on podcastonfire.com. We cover a wide uh, selections from across Asia and we do bonus episodes every now and again email us if you have any questions or feedback about the Oscars about the Handmaiden or what have you podcast on fire at googlemail.com at the top of our, of our website you'll reach our social media by clicking the Facebook button the Twitter button you can subscribe to us on iTunes by clicking that particular selection and also follow us on and look us up rather on Stitcher Radio either via the website or the applications available for free from the Apple App Store and Google Play that's where you stream us and I write about the variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies on SoGoodReviews.com horrible name for a website but I'm sticking with it and uh, I have a little video hub with a better website name SleazyKVideo.com and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews and Paul send us out with a plug of Hangul Celluloid okay head over to HangulCelluloid.com you can find me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash HangulCelluloid I'm on Twitter at HangulCelluloid if you're interested in The Handmaiden pop over to the site you'll find the review and as I said, the interviews with Ha Jung Woo, Ryu Sung Yi, who was the production designer, Chung Chung Hoon, who was the cinematographer, and there's an interview with Ha Jung Woo as well. So head over and have a look. What about Park Chan Wook? Has there ever been, an, ever been an opportunity to get into a group interview thing with him while in the UK? Problem with Park Chan Wook is that when he comes over, his management run his deal. Um, I was hoping that knowing he was going to the London Film Festival in November, we'd get the chance or some of somebody would get the chance to chat to him. They blanket bombed everybody apart from the BBC. So I, I, I honestly think until this whole blacklisting political side dies down, I don't think anybody's going to really get to talk to him because they don't want him being asked certain questions mm, right well he seems uh, he, he's uh, never seemed reluctant to do interviews and commentaries and things like that so i'm sure he would uh, if, he, if he had a say in it uh, even though he would have uh, been uh, he wouldn't have dipped into politics as such you know uh, he uh, probably he would probably be happy to talk about the filmmaking and uh, and what have you very much so i think they're just they're very cautious on his behalf yeah, because he even did an interview. Not, I'm not saying like, uh, well, he went to this site and uh, why would he? Because no one does. There, there's a YouTube video series called DP slash 30, I believe, where this American uh, 
YouTube profile uh, interviews a variety of directors and uh, he did a for half an hour so that def- usually it's half an hour therefore it's DP 30 and he interviewed a via translator um, late last year I think uh, Park Chan-wook and uh, Kim Tyree so uh, there's a little session with them so I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes in case you are interested and and I will I will certainly head over there as well you know more for Kim Tyree um, because I think I want to hear what she has to say Cool, cool, cool. Well, we are done for this episode, so uh, thank you everybody for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Let's see if our numbers go through the roof now that now that we have done the handmaiden. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I bet they will. Okay. But uh, I've been kind of being with me was Paul Quinn of Hango Celluloid. So say sayonara. Goodbye, buddy. Sayonara. See you later, guys. <laughs>